The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, it's Friday, everybody. A warm welcome to the Scorebox with Karen Cho and myself, Steve Sedgwick. And these are your Friday morning headlines. Prepare for a no-deal Brexit. That is the warning from the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson as Brussels adopts emergency measures to keep trade flowing if talks collapse. There's now a strong possibility, strong possibility, that uh, we will have a, a solution that's much more like an Australian relationship with the EU. But a budget breakthrough in Brussels. European leaders unlock 1.8 trillion euros in recovery funds after reaching a deal with Poland and Hungary. Bringing down the house, shares in Airbnb double in their debut day of trade, at one point valuing the group at over $100 billion and the biggest US IPO of 2020. Disney bets on its streaming platform as the entertainment giant announces 10 new Marvel and Star Wars shows during its Investor Day while raising prices for Disney+. And a group of FDA advisors vote in favour of authorising Pfizer and BioNTech's COVID vaccine for emergency use in a move that could see the drug rolled out across the United States within days. Prime Minister Boris Johnson has warned people and businesses to prepare for a potential no-deal Brexit, while the EU has published contingency plans for a collapse in negotiations. This as negotiators on both sides face a Sunday deadline to decide the future of talks. A uh, quick look at how sterling has perched despite uh, the significant uncertainty going into the weekend. A somewhat resilient trade, we've barely budged and uh, you can see very much stuck in this 133 to 134 handle where we've spent most of the week. We've seen a little bit of oscillation through the trading sessions in recent days, but really uh, given that the chances of not agreeing a deal or also some form of a breakthrough, we are very much uh, trapped around this level. Johnson pledged to continue pursuing a free trade deal with the EU, but added there is a strong possibility the talks will fail. There's now a strong possibility, strong possibility, that uh, we will have a, a solution that's much more like an Australian relationship with the EU. Now is the time for the public and for businesses uh, to get ready for January the 1st. Because, believe me, there's going to be change I've got to read here, but did you hear the gusto with which the British Prime Minister said the word Australian there? We'll play it again later. We play it Australian. He's trying to get people excited about no deal because that is what Australian rules are. Let's just so we all know about that. And so the Prime Minister isn't trying to get us all excited about Australian. I'm, don't get me wrong. I, I, I feel that every time I speak to Karen, Australian. But, but seriously, is he trying to do this? Anyway, let's move on. Meanwhile, the EU has laid out its preparations for a no-deal Brexit, including provisions for transportation and fishing access. Yes, guess what? They want one year of extra access. Uh, as the bloc looks to avoid a large-scale disruption, the EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen warned that talks remained at an impasse. 
I had a very long conversation uh, yesterday night with the Prime Minister Boris Johnson. It was a good conversation, but it is difficult. We are willing to grant access to the single market to our British friends. It's the largest single market in the world. But the conditions have to be fair. They have to be fair for our workers and for our companies. And this fine balance of fairness has not been achieved so far. Our negotiators and are still working, and we will take a decision on Sunday. Karen, let me start off with something dastardly and ask you a question to which the answer I didn't know about 30 seconds ago. So who is Thomas Fuller or who was Thomas Fuller? Oh, good question. I think I meant to know this. You're not. You're not. You're really not. I just looked up something and his name came up as well. So some of the smarty pants out there in our audience will know who Thomas Fuller is. Uh, he was an English theologian, of course, in 1650. And why is this relevant now? Because I was looking for the man or indeed the woman who came up with the following phrase. It is always darkest just before the day dawneth. Well, it's pretty dark now, isn't it? We have to go back to 1650 to find out who came up with that, quite frankly, genius phrase. I'm just pleased it wasn't, uh, as usual, Mark Twain or Winston Churchill, who seemed to have nabbed most of the best phrases in history. Look, this is really dark at the moment in terms of those of us out there, and there are those of us out there, who believe in free trade and want this one trillion dollars worth of trade to not be scuppered by three issues. And they are three very big issues as well. Of the three, perhaps the governance of a deal thereafter and who would be uh, looking out for infringements, perhaps that's the least problematic. But the other two in terms of fisheries, which as all our viewers well know by now, is such a tiny decimal of the overall one point trillion trade between the two blocks as well, that it is almost insignificant. But it has become totemic. It is the most important issue because of plucky fishermen out of the Breton ports or out of Fishguard or, or out of wherever it may well be in the United Kingdom. But the, the, the issues over state subsidies uh, and how to punish those who digress from this as well, this has become the biggest issue, Karen, as well. And, and quite frankly, it seems that both Ursula von der Leyen and the British Prime Minister at the moment are giving up on this as well. And you can understand it from both points of view. And I know you've got a lot to say on this as well. But from, from the European point of view, they don't want, and, and I like this phrase that I saw this morning, a Singapore on Thames next to them, so close to undercut them on a lot of issues and a lot of subsidy issues. But from the UK point of view, apparently this Brexit vote was all about sovereignty uh, and having the Europeans with ratchet clauses and and ability at a supranational level to add uh, subsidies where the British couldn't do it at a country and a sovereign level, this seems insurmountable as well. So you can kind of understand a little bit both sides. The problem is they're not talking to each other in the same language. Steve, you can 100% see why there's a stumbling block over these ratchet clauses. The whole point was to extract uh, the UK from the situation where it was not having enough of a say in the bloc, because it wanted its sovereignty back. Uh, to be signing up to a ratchet clause means signing up to legislation that you have no say into, you have no visibility over, you have no idea what a future government will also determine ac- across various parts of Europe. So you can see why this is a stumbling block. But um, that said, this was always going to be one of the challenges if uh, the UK was not part of making any of those decisions. So here we are in the final hour, unable to get past one of the major issues. When it comes to the Australian style deal, I think you and I are both on the same page. We both listened to that clip from Boris Johnson, the great confidence with which he was trying to sell this Australian style deal. Well, Australia does about 80% of its trade with Asian nations. It does about 9% with Europe. Quite a different situation to be trying to compare and sell to the British public that their fortunes are going to be well looked after by selling uh, this type of deal when it's very different when it's 
it's a major export uh, block and it's also the nearest neighbor versus Australia when we're talking about a trading block on the other side of the world. Very, very different dynamics here and uh, possibly not responsible to be using it as a fair comparison. We were hearing just recently from uh, some of the fishermen at the forefront of one of these fights saying a 5% tariff would send them broke. That would be the tipping point. You know, 5% tariff is the small end of some of the tariffs that can be enacted under some of this WTO legislation, Steve. All of the above, Karen, this is going to be the dullest argument of all time because we are on the same page. I think we're both free traders for a start as well. Just a couple of points in case our viewers don't know what the ratchet clause is. And just literally, if the EU were to move uh, laws and ratchet up their own laws, then the British would have to follow suit. And if they didn't, then there would be potentially an EC body that would uh, fine automatically without any redress uh, the British or for not doing so and inform some form of punitive tariff on that as well. So I, I think that's quite extraordinary that the British would be signing up to something which they don't even know would be happening and the EU would decide and keep, as from the British point of view, uh, the UK as a client state as well. But other points on this one as well. One, uh, the Irish are quite rightly the voice of reason in this as well, as indeed they very often are. They're saying, look, for goodness sake, we've done 97% of this. Um, and Michal Martin was talking again yesterday, we've done 97% of this. We're going to give this all up for 3%, which I think, is, again, is a very good point as well. So to say that there is a deadline on talks on Sunday when they are so close in so many ways, and yet so far as we've discussed in others, seems quite extraordinary. That's the Irish point of view as well. Uh, Scotland as well um, made a very interesting point, and perhaps this is more anecdotal as well, that, that these fish that the British are fighting for, but a large amount of them are in Scottish waters. Now, if there were to be another referendum vote on Scottish secession from the Union as well and to become an independent state, would those fish become Scottish rather than British? And I think that's yeah, it's an interesting point that was raised there as well. So I, I think from the from other points of view as well, it just seems nonsensical that we can go so far and yet fail so near to the line on issues which can be resolved if diplomacy uh, were to come to the fore. But it's very interesting that Boris Johnson also said, not only did he say he'll go to Brussels, he said he'll go to Berlin. He said he would also go to Paris to get a deal. And I think that really does underline the fact that uh, Ursula von der Leyen, again, excellent diplomat that she is, excellent leader of the European Commission. She's proved herself so far in many ways. And she's got that deal for Poland and Hungary as well through uh, as well when it looked very thorny. The fact of the matter is the power brokers, and we all know this, with all due respect to the former German defence minister, is Paris and Berlin. Karen. Yes. And good points you make about the fish. We're talking about uh, herring and mackerel, which seem to be uh, fish that swim a little bit further north and uh, quite friendly in cold water, <laughs> Steve. Uh, let's press on and take a look from the European perspective as EU member states have unlocked 1.8 trillion euros in recovery funds. This after leaders reached a compromise deal with Hungary and Poland. Sylvia, we've been talking about this EU budget. It feels as though the physical meeting has yielded a result. Uh, but we're also hearing that there aren't any formal conversations around Brexit. So it feels as though a lot of backroom uh, briefings will be the way this uh, discussion plays out over the next uh, 24 hours. So some of the some of the heads of state actually mentioned Brexit on their way into the EU summit, but the focus has been on the EU budget. And when it comes to this, let me just remind our audience that Hungary and Poland had vetoed what was on the table, this massive stimulus package, because the disbursement of certain funds was linked to the respect of the European values of the rule of law mechanism. So the way that the EU has now fixed this impasse and managed 
to get the, the Hungary and Poland to lift their vetoes was by this complex, quite complex uh, instrument. So what will happen is that the European Commission has committed to not bring forward any sort of rule of law procedures for before the European Court of Justice, so the judicial body of the EU, announces whether or not linking the disbursements with the rule of law is a part that respects the European treaty. So before the European Court of Justice rules on whether or not this is actually feasible, the European Commission is not going to take any action. And this allows for, and we're not expecting a decision from the European Court of Justice for at least one year. And so in the short term, this allows Hungary and Poland to be off the hook when it comes to the rule of law, when it comes to respecting European values, such as freedom of speech, the freedom of the judiciary, and so on. So this this is how the European uh, Union has fixed this impasse and what's important to remind our audience of is that the disbursements, so the coronavirus stimulus package on top of the next EU budget that will serve between 2021 and 2027 will go ahead on time because that was the big concern when it came to this impasse with Hungary and Poland was whether or not this, these much needed funds would actually be disbursed on time. But let's take a look at some of the remarks from Chancellor Angela Merkel when she arrived in Brussels here yesterday because it was thanks to Germany that this compromise was actually, actually achieved. In the last few days, Germany, also myself personally and my colleagues, have worked very intensely to bridge the difficulties we had and to find a solution for the reservations of Hungary and Poland. We will see today whether we find unanimity for this in the European Council. We have, in any case, tried to do a lot of preparatory work. And of course, it would also be a very important signal for the European Union's ability to act if we could achieve this important result. So the bottom line at this stage is that the EU is indeed going ahead with the 1.8 trillion euro stimulus package on time uh, as planned in July. But when it comes to the rule of law mechanism, there will be at least a delay of about a year before we see any sort of concrete action when it comes to that. Well, Sylvia, one deal is through, or one agreement that uh, seemed to have many stumbling blocks. So let's just see whether there can be a breakthrough now on uh, Brexit, whether this is encouraging news and whether there's any flow across between the two issues. Thank you very much for bringing us an update. Coming up on the show, there's no place like home. Airbnb shares surge in a public market debut, giving the company a valuation of over $86 billion. We'll have more details on the IPO after the break. And for more on the ramp up of preparations for a no-deal Brexit, check out the Squawk Box podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com.
Welcome back. Let's go stateside with the news flow. A bill to avoid a US government shutdown has stalled in the Senate as lawmakers disagree over funding, potential delaying further stimulus. The Senate Majority Leader is Mitch McConnell, of course. He reportedly once again rejected the $908 billion bipartisan COVID relief plan, whilst his Democratic colleagues uh, repeated their endorsement of it. The House Speaker, meanwhile, Nancy Pelosi, said she would continue to negotiate through Christmas with several of the current aid programmes, as I'm sure our viewers are aware, are now set to expire on December 26th. Meanwhile, on the data front, well, we had some CPI, which was a tick higher than expected. We also had the uh, jobless claims and the number of Americans filing for their first claim for jobless benefits has jumped to a three-month high, pretty much a near three-month high. Initial jobless claims hit 853,000 last week. That is above forecast, uh, with continuing claims uh, rising to 5.76 million. That is the first time the number has increased since August, Karen. Steve, some very mixed signals out there on the market, I'm sure you would have noticed as well. Very strong trade in the IPOs this week. An incredible journey that has taken place, suggesting very strong investor appetite to go back into risk on assets as you see the doubling of some stock prices on day one of a market listing. But then if you look at the broader market, some nervousness in the mix. I mean, the Dow, the S&P just coming off some of the higher ranges, a second negative session for both of these major indices. So to have such extraordinary trade in one quarter of the market and to see weakness elsewhere is a flash up a couple of warning signs about the inequality that's taking place in some of these market performers. The Nasdaq, as a result of that tech story, bouncing, as you can see, we've got about half of a percent of the mix. And if you consider some of the big movers yesterday, we had some disappointment around those stimulus talks, but uh, positivity around vaccine developments, uh, given the FDA was casting its eye over the Pfizer and BioNTech vaccine candidate. But uh, as you can see, the concentration of focus very much around those tech names and over uh, the course of the week, we're still seen a reversal for the Nasdaq too, despite that very, very strong performance in a couple of quarters of the market around the new listings. Treasuries, we've seen a, a little bit of a drift south, uh, still very much in a range, but just a little bit lower on the, the recent uh, trading levels we've seen on both the 10-year and the two years. So uh, just drifting off uh, a couple of basis points each. Dollar crosses, uh, this is how we approached in the morning session. Significant political risk. We've just been discussing what is playing out in Brussels around Brexit, uh, whether there will be any breakthrough this weekend. But we are still perched in the same old level between 133 and 134. The uh, glimmer of hope around what we're seeing with the EU budget. You're seeing a little bit of support too for Euro, up about a tenth of a percent. More support yesterday from the ECB, but very much in line with what was expected. So. 121 and a half range that we've witnessed uh, in recent sessions as well. The dollar is weaker versus the Japanese yen and the Chinese currency. Do a bit more work now on Airbnb because the shares, uh, as Karen was mentioning, skyrocketed on the first day of trading, closing up just over 112%. Just digest that for a second. 112 the stock chart started trading at 146 bucks per share after pricing at $68 a piece. Uh, the move drove Airbnb's market valuation above $86 billion. Um, that is past competitors Marriott and Hilton and Booking.com. But I can tell you, if you added Marriott's um, uh, market cap and you added that to Hilton and then you stuck on IHG just as a little sprinkling on top, you would still pretty much have a valuation uh, soaring to a higher level there as well. Look, and I... I think we have to call this how it is in many ways as well. This isn't a stock that's being traded on growth potential, on profit potential, on actual valuation. And if the traditional valuation metrics 
uh, you have to chuck out the window. Otherwise, there would have been incompetence from the likes of Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, who are the underwriters here. And I don't believe for one minute they were incompetent in their pricing. I just thought they'd think, well, whatever we price it, it's going to do what it wants anyway. Because there are people, and Karen, you used a very interesting word at the wall, whether you knew it or not. You said the word investor. Uh, and I don't necessarily consider the people who buy into day one IPOs as investors. I call them stags in many ways, i.e. they are looking to trade short-term moves very aggressively and make enormous profit. And good luck to them. If they've done that, that is a perfectly legitimate trading strategy. But I think there's a very big delineation between investor and stag as well. And I just wanted to just do a little bit of work on the valuation, if I may, before I hand back to you, because I know you've got these sensible things to say about this as well. In the first nine months of 2020, the company lost $697 million. Now, I understand, and everyone's going, it's COVID year. Of course, it would have affected them. So then we go back a year just to look at the loss the previous year. So in a normal year, a normal year of growth for a 13-year-old company, they lost $323 billion US dollars as well. The revenue uh, so far this year, uh, I think it's coming at $2.5 billion, of course, compared with last year. Again, you know, we understand the differences, $3.7 billion. But let's say 2020 is an anomaly. So let's go back to 2019 and say $3.7 billion there. Let's say they can make $5 billion of revenue in 2021, which I think is totally feasible when you look at the past trajectory and where they've gone to. So let's say that their revenue picks up from this year, pretty much doubles, which I think is fairly fair. So $5 billion. So that takes us to the revenue, the, the figure as a percentage of sales of what the market cap is. Sales, not profit, okay, viewers? So when you buy it at the current level, you are buying this at 20 times sales. Not 20 times earnings, not 20 times profit, not a PE, like on the NASDAQ of 20 point something. You're buying it at 20 times sales. 20 years of sales, not profit, is what you just paid yesterday, everybody, if you bought this as well. I think it's very interesting, Karen. It's punchy, isn't it? Uh, investors are signing up for a lot. And I would say investors, Steve, because uh, some of our colleagues have sent us some numbers. If you're a trader on day one and you bought uh, the stock on the market, then you're probably underwater on day one, despite those extraordinary moves. Uh, the stock closing below the opening price. So uh, you're going to have to hold on to it for a little bit longer than a 24-hour period at this point. Uh, when it comes to the valuation, I mean, we were looking at the numbers before it hit the market yesterday, $47 billion valuation. And we were sort of scratching our heads saying, this is incredible. It's had a year where it's been rocked by a pandemic. The revenue numbers are down 19% on the same quarter a year ago, but yet investors are not worried about driving that valuation to the higher range. We were not at the higher range. We got to the higher range of $86 billion in valuation after the trade on the markets. So it's just quite stunning that these um, IPOs are not being viewed with any sensibility. Uh, we've been hearing from recent quarters of the markets, uh, some uh, central bankers concerned about excess and certain asset classes. Well, perhaps it's in the IPO market. Perhaps we're somewhere that the excess is being released, Steve. And the other big point is, when you've seen a very strong trade in some of the FANG stocks, there's now enormous concerns about regulation. Perhaps some investors are cashing in on those particular exposures and just redirecting the cash elsewhere to other areas of the market where they may not have that exposure. And we talk about Airbnb a sharing platform a little bit different to some of the other listed tech names out there also DoorDash in some ways for American investors in particular so perhaps spreading out some of those tech exposures is uh, you know one of the, the motivations for investors to buy up these stocks but, but Karen, it's not hard to buy exposure to online booking platforms as well. And as I think we mentioned in one of our previous chats, actually, 42% uh, of the uh, properties and premises that are listed on Airbnb are uh, amicable elsewhere. You can find the same properties elsewhere as well. So it's not hard to find 
a tech-savvy travel booking platform, which is trading at, a, dare I say, a more modest uh, level as well. I mean, I think what's very interesting, and I think you did touch upon another very interesting point as well as well as all the others, is the fact that the, the cheapness of money and where people are looking for returns. And I'll just go back to, again, what Jeff was talking about yesterday when he very pointedly talked about if you buy German bunds at the moment, and dare I say it, $17 trillion globally of sovereign paper, trades at a negative yield, i.e. you buy those bonds knowing you are going to lose money with a US CPI figure yesterday of over 1%. So inflation, let's say the US is the benchmark, is over 1%. But you are buying bonds at a negative yield. You are losing money on that asset despite the fact there's inflation. It's no wonder that people are using that money as some form of carry trade to try and have a punt on the market. Uh, and, I, and I think, again, your market war earlier on was spot on as well. Uh, the more modest moves elsewhere on some of these big markets, and I'll just say uh, w- what we've done uh, in the last days or so, we've done very little on the, on the US markets. In fact, 7 out of 11 sectors were negative yesterday. Maybe some of that money was being put to work by retail investors, dare I say, our friends over at Robinhood as well, in order to just have a crack at this one, as you say, on the first day. But I agree, there are some investors out there. But if they think... Think this is such a great, great, great growth company, and unicorns can take as long as they want to get into market nowadays. They've become multi-billion, trillion-dollar companies if they want. Why were the sellers selling? Well, you could cash in on day one and, and bolster your performance. So if you'd got the uh, the allocation at sixty-eight dollars a piece and you sold at uh, one forty odd plus, no, I mean the owners, some Karen, stage. The owners. Well, we know where the owners the are owners selling, selling at, don't we? <laughs> Well, I think that's pretty obvious. Uh, try to cash in, raise some money at this stage and uh, maximise uh, what they've been working on for the last uh, number of years. But if you think about the, the profits that some of those investors uh, that, in the allocation, it's it lifted their bench, their performance versus the benchmark into year end. And that's significant when you talk about what has been an incredibly volatile year for stocks. But I would just make the final point too. You see IPOs like this, maybe we've got a, a longer window for the IPO market than what we thought. Uh, Let's push on to Disney, where shares rose almost 4% in after-hours trade after the entertainment giant revealed Disney Plus now has over 86 million subscribers. The company added that it now expects to return to profitability by 2024, having taken a major hit due to the pandemic, with all of its theme parks being forced to close. Disney made the announcements as it unveiled a slew of new movies and shows, the majority of which will be released directly onto its streaming platform. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.